I'm Catherine Granger. This is Medals and More, the podcast getting you behind the scenes of Olympic and Paralympic sport. As many of us reflect on a tumultuous 2020, in this episode, we'll be focusing on the future. What can we learn from the challenges we faced and how elite sport can work together and move forward successfully. This is episode three of the latest season of Medals and More. We recently staged our annual UK Sport Conference, better known to many of us as PLX 2020, where almost a thousand people from across the world of sport came together, virtually of course, for a week of insight, learning, collective challenge and reflection. Personally, I learned huge amounts from the various external and internal speakers, and it was also a great opportunity to just stop and reflect on the year we've all had. One of the more memorable conversations I had was early on in the week when I spoke with Hazel Irvin, who usually hosts our conference, but this year co-hosted our awards. And the first thing Hazel wanted to speak about was how in awe she was of the incredible work still being done within the high-performance sports system, and also the people who were doing it. She talked about how many other sectors have had to stop or stall or hesitated during the pandemic and how inspiring it was to read about the levels of creativity, innovation and collaboration still forging ahead in sport. I thought sometimes it can take someone who is slightly on the outside of things to point out that what we think of as quite ordinary is in actual fact extraordinary. Coming up today, we'll be hearing from three very special guests who have all been challenged this year in different ways. Mike Cavendish from British Triathlon tells us why the COVID-19 pandemic may have done them a favour. We've now had seven or eight months of doing huge amounts of work on Zwift, either on treadmills or on turbo trainers. It's meant our athletes actually enjoy it. They understand it. They they know what they're getting out of their training in a way they didn't before. Olympic bronze medalist Sarah Stevenson on ensuring athletes have their voice heard. Everything that every sport does, first and foremost, should be what's best for the athletes. If you look after the athletes, you listen to them, give them a voice, then ultimately as well, they're going to perform and we're going to get more medals. So, you know, you should, we should be listening to them and what they need. And former Italy and Harlequin's head coach, Connor O'Shea, on what makes a successful high-performance team. You go to Harlequin's and you say, we want to be the best team in Europe. That's something that can be achieved. You go to Italy and you say, we're going to be the number one team in the world in four years, and you're just a laughing stock. So you set a realistic vision. So let's hear from our first guest, Mike Cavendish, the British Triathlon Performance Director who will lead the Olympic and Paralympic teams in Tokyo. This increase in tech has been a bit of a whirlwind, and things have moved at a pretty significant pace for us as a sport, considering where we've come from. But Will things just revert to how they were once COVID finally leaves us behind? Well, I think the impact and the long-term opportunities provided by the use of technologies are just too great, actually, for that to be the case. And I'll touch on a couple of those now. So undoubtedly, it's enabled us to reach new audiences. So for our commercial participation base, it's absolutely enormous. You know, that hybrid real-life SWIFT is absolutely here to stay. There'll hopefully be you know, an entire series now being spawned off of the back of that, one of those in the UK, and we'll build that into our prep for Tokyo. Earlier this year, we would have normally had uh, a World Series race with a big mass participation event in Leeds. That went online, we did the Leeds Virtual Challenge, and that was hugely successful at attracting people who would never previously have done a triathlon and certainly wouldn't have done one um, in Leeds at that time of year. And the impact of this alone could have, if we get it right on our commercial value, 
and our membership income is potentially enormous and the health of our sport has got huge, huge things to benefit from this. But the other real impact for that in terms of new audience is about our pathway and the potential to make this even more sustainable. This last six or seven months and the engagement with things like Swift and online digital communities has absolutely taught us how we can reach and engage with new groups of people. I would be amazed in... Uh, I don't know, 10, 20 years time, if we don't have athletes, not necessarily from the UK, but from anywhere who are not on the Olympic program, in Olympic podium, Paralympic podium in sports like triathlon or, or other similar sports who didn't have their first experience of the sport via some sort of online digital environment. And, you know, it's really, really important, I feel, that we embrace that moving forward because if we don't, we'll just get left behind. But it's also enabled us to kind of culturally push towards a greater objectivity in our training. It's something that culturally as a sport we're trying to do and and actually using more things like Zwift and, you know, how it automatically connects with training peaks and everything that we would normally do is actually genuinely, I, I think, helped to just push us a little bit further towards the, the gains that we've genuinely been trying to make from a data and tech perspective as well. And bizarrely, it's enabled us to build much greater connections between different parts of our sport than we've ever had before. I honestly can't say whether we would have you know, proposed using a lot more Zwift and online technologies to kind of create the type of connections that we have now have because of COVID. But I'm sure is Damit going to make sure that we pick that ball up and we keep it running. We don't let the hopefully ending of COVID uh, kind of set us back and we don't forget all the things that we've learned from COVID and from technology in the last seven or eight months. And critically for us, the shift towards more virtual training has had a kind of unintended shorter term consequence for us in terms of prep for Tokyo. Essentially, we had a, a big heat camp that we decided to do domestically instead of going overseas, essentially to try and cut down on our travel and the risk that, that brings about. And uh, that was the first time really that we started to use Zwift and kickers and uh, turbo trainers, etc. Um, as part of our tactics to try and make what we were doing more bearable and more effective. We have to repeat that next year. You know, we did that all before the test event in Tokyo last year where we got some really good results. And again, um, science and medicine team have done an unbelievable job with the heat and humidity strategy they've put in place. But actually, we know we've got to do more. We know we've got to potentially do more heat chamber work, more bespoke heat chamber work, potentially, particularly with if coronavirus hangs around, more heat chamber work on athletes' own in a chamber or without even anybody else to speak to. And actually... The fact that we've now had coronavirus and we've now had seven or eight months of doing huge amounts of work on Zwift, either on treadmills or on turbo trainers, has meant our athletes actually enjoy it. They understand it. They they know what they're getting out of their training in a way they didn't before. And so actually their feel for it when they're in a heat chamber is now massively increased and it's significantly better than it would have been had we not had this period for the last eight or nine months. So bizarrely, COVID has potentially done us a massive favour. Um not only in creating those personal bonds, but in the way actually that we can now be more bespoke and more flexible. And athletes are genuinely looking to do more now that we never, ever thought was likely to be possible. What have we learned? Well, I've tried to kind of narrow this down into three kind of key take homes that I'm trying to hang on to really as we start to emerge, hopefully out of COVID at some point next year. And the first one is obvious, but I've said it before, and this stuff is here to stay. And um, I consider myself to be a relatively young leader within our system. And so, you know, I, I like to think I'm relatively close to the trends and way of thinking of our young athletes. Although anybody who's witnessed me using technology recently will realise that's probably not the case. But in reality, I'm still, you know, over 20 years away from athletes as they first enter our sport. 
think back to what existed in terms of tech 20 years ago. I think it was the time of the Nokia 3210. There was certainly no iPhones. You know, Zwift was absolutely not invented. Think of what exists now and then think what that might mean in another 20 years of time. As I said earlier, I'm utterly convinced that we will be finding athletes to come onto our pathway and other sports will be doing the same via some sort of digital online platform where they're introduced to the sport. And it won't just be the traditional talent ID where you turn up to a training venue and you get tested or you experience the sport for the first time. And, and whether that means that we end up having digital online events in the future, I don't know, but it's, it's here to stay. It's only going to get more and more important. On that note, I think another really key important thing to take home or what we've learned from tech is, is look at what extra or different it can give, not what you're trying to replace. If you just focus on using tech to try and solve problems, I don't think you'll make the most of it. That's definitely where we started out. We started out just looking to think, how the hell can we, we manage to keep our athletes training? How can we make sure things stay as normal as possible? But you'll see it then from things like the you know arena games and the, the online um, crossover of different training groups and parts of our pathway that we didn't have before. It's just opened up so much more opportunity. And if you look at it as a way that you can add extra and do more rather than just how can it solve a problem, you're going to get a hell of a lot more out of technology and kind of this digital revolution than, than if you look at it just in terms of the, the negatives. And the final thing really is, is operating virtually is, as I said, completely different, but also exactly the same. And what do I mean by that? Well, the formats might be different, but the demands of athletes to compete are still exactly the same. The environments might be different, but the risks, injury primarily for us are still exactly the same. And the nature of interaction might be different, but the desire to come together as friends as humans have a social connection, a social interaction, particularly for us as sport, is still exactly the same. And if you hang on to those things, again, technology should be an enabler. It should be something that you can actually get a huge amount from and see opportunities rather than just it be something to help you get out of the hole if and when we have another global pandemic again. So hopefully that gives you a flavour of, of how we've approached the last seven or eight months, how we've kind of made use of those digital environments and how we intend to try and use them again and make use of them for the foreseeable future. Mike Cavendish from British Triathlon. You're listening to Medals and More, getting behind the scenes of Olympic and Paralympic sport. Still to come, we'll focus on what makes a high-performance team with England Rugby's Director of Performance. But never before has the voice of an athlete been more important to be heard. Sarah Stevenson, Beijing bronze medalist and former GB Taekwondo coach, has just been appointed as a full member of the Executive Council of World Taekwondo, the sport's governing body. She's been speaking to UK Sports Claire Barrell about how important it is that the face of sport continues to change. Everything that every sport does, you know, first and foremost, should be what's best for the athletes. If you look after the athletes, you listen to them, give them a voice, then ultimately as well, they're going to perform and we're going to get more medals. So, you know, you should, we should be listening to them and what they need. Many leaders, you know, in those powerful positions, they're so, they're so far removed from what those athletes need. And, and also maybe never have been an athlete. So I don't know what it's like to be an athlete. Even though I've been retired for oh, um, seven years now, I still feel like I'm an athlete. I still feel like I'll never leave kind of, what they need because I've done it since I was seven years old till I was nearly 30 so it's all I've ever known you know and for me I feel like I've come through all the levels so a club elite athlete coach uh, working with you know back into grassroots and all those leadership roles so for me kind of come through it all and you know I feel like I can always 
represent what they need. Let's take it back to you at the stage that you transitioned, that you retired from athlete at the end of your career. Where did it take you post-retirement? I mean, retirement's always a tricky one, isn't it? I think um, it takes a long time to kind of come to terms with retirement and what you're going to do next. It was quite an easy transition to start with. I was so ready to retire. I, you know, I've had enough now. What am I going to do? But what am I going to do next? Um, I went straight into coaching. So I kind of left the athletes I was training with and then I was coaching them, which was a bit of a weird transition, but it made me feel comfortable because that's what I'd always known. So I was still traveling with the team, still being involved, still felt like I was there. And then did that for a few years and then you go and have children and that just kind of changes everything and then to kind of go back into coaching traveling the world um my husband does the same job so for me it was kind of a hard thing to go back into at that level and I think sometimes you know motherhood and and elite coaching doesn't really have that accommodation which is another story but for me it wasn't something that I felt like I could do I couldn't give 100% of the time um and be a mum so I never went back to coaching, unfortunately. And then I think after that, I kind of lost myself a little bit. And I think for me, I was always felt like I was always searching for something else, always looking for opportunities or opportunities came my way. Like someone you know, said, why don't you try and be on the board for British Taekwondo? I didn't even know what British Taekwondo did. So never mind being on the board. It was all these opportunities coming at me or me searching for something. And I always felt like that was a negative thing. Um, and it was actually a conversation with the performance lifestyle lady, Natalie, for GB Taekwondo. And she was asking me to speak at an athlete career day um, in Manchester. And we were having this exact same conversation. And I was thinking, well, I'm a, am I the right person to speak about this? Because I don't know what I'm doing. I feel like I've got about five different roles. And I didn't realise that that was OK. And having that conversation made me realise, do you know what? That's OK. That That's me. I'm an, I'm an elite athlete in my head. So I'm always going to be looking for things. I'm always going to be searching for opportunities. And also, like, I've got to have the confidence that I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good at what I've done. I've done some great things in my life. And people want a piece of me. And so I'm always being pulled. So it kind of took me a while to realise that that's OK. It's OK to always have new things going on. Yeah, and then kind of being on the board for British Taekwondo, that was the first step into a brand new world really into a leadership into the world of like you know running a business which you know I still feel like I'm learning now definitely and for me to kind of have a representation on a board as an athlete was a new thing for British Taekwondo so hopefully they've learned some things from me I've certainly learned a lot from being part of that and then once being on that board that is when I was elected to be president and I'll be honest I didn't want to be president you know for me I saw a president of Taekwondo, of a country of Taekwondo, as, as someone definitely not that, that looks like me. Nobody as a president looks like me. No, not fe- no females, no one under 40 or 30. And I think um, it, it wasn't something that I wanted. I didn't see myself fitting into that world because, uh, you know, there wasn't, how do I get into that world? How do I make a difference? I'm a, I'm a young female. It wasn't for me. But I didn't really have a choice. I got elected as president and, you know, it's took a a while. and I'm really enjoying it now. I'm really getting a lot more confidence from it. And then, yeah, just kind of going into that, you know, it kind of took steps from there, really. I'm curious how it felt at that first board meeting. You're not the first elite athlete I've spoken to that said, 
well, while I was out there, I didn't know really what my NGB slash what UK Sport did. I just knew where they, they came from on the receiving end. And now I'm learning more about the arms, I suppose, of the organisation. And it's a bit mind blowing. But a board decision and being a board member, how enabling was that environment for you to first step into? Who was helping you out there? Well, do you know what? I might just flip it and just talk a little bit about not the British Taekwondo board, but more. I actually was when I first retired. I actually got put onto the council as an as I think it's probably the first ever athlete rep um, onto the council. So that was a long time ago. We didn't have what you guys have now. I had no one told me what a council was. No one told me how to speak there. I was completely and utterly like out of my depth. I think my first council meeting for World Taekwondo was in Bali. So I was on the plane on my own halfway around the world for two nights in Bali. And I was just thrown into this this meeting that I had no idea about. And it was very, very daunting. And I'm like a confident athlete. Now, to put me in a world that I had no idea about, I was really not confident. I had no one supporting me um, in terms of how to be there, how to approach people. No one really spoke to me either because, again, I was different. I was you know, mm-hmm. the, the young female athlete. And I'm not saying it's anyone's fault. They just didn't, they don't know how to speak to me either and how to kind of work with me. So, so my first experience wasn't great. Um, hence how I've got this second opportunity. I'm really going to not make the same mistakes and make sure that I have a meaningful voice and I want to be there to make a difference. The statistics speak for themselves about the makeup of international sport. And when we talk on a grander scheme about why representation matters and why diversity of thought matters around the table, it's because of the the summer international federations that exist. There are still seven or eight that have no women around the top table at any point, despite the fact that the sport is participated and represented at the Games by 50-50. And so open of you to consider where you felt he was coming from with that view but you can see why people would be put off or intimidated right then stepping into this space so you've sort of talked now about your second opportunity and and let's not assume everybody knows what it is can you just tell us a little bit about the world taekwondo council and a little bit about the role that you've been asked to to play there and I suppose what you're going to do differently it's not always about I'm not trying to fix you but you've got some learning now from working in this space so how I suppose what matters to you what are you trying to drive and how are you going about leading some of that change I think um for me it's you know the World Taekwondo Council is you know a body of people from from all over the world um that make the high-end decisions on behalf of everyone that sits underneath so all the M&As all the athletes and the decisions they've they've got to be the right decisions and they've got to be balanced and that's for me now with a little bit more confidence I've learned a lot and I'm going to plug the ILP now I think for me being on the international relations program like I came into it kind of as the president but a new new president new leader uh, without kind of any training and just being around that cohort of incredible people on that course has just been the biggest learning curve. Just speaking to other females as well that have probably been there a little bit longer than me. And the way they speak with so much confidence, I've learned so much. And I've learned that international relations, you have to be more patient because things take a lot more time. If you go in there like a bull in a china shop, then no one's going to listen to you. They're all going to think, who's this new person? coming in here trying to make an impact who's this young female 
with all, you know, she, she can't come and drink beers with us and make all these decisions. And I think it's understanding that it takes a little bit of time. And for me, being a female, having those comments a few years ago, that's made me want to change it. So I'm going to be on this council now, and I am a chair of a committee, the Taekwondo for All committee. And we've spoken a lot about the gender gaps. And we have some huge, huge gender gaps within leadership, within coaching, within refereeing, within the committees and, and within the council. We have um, over 200 MAs and only eight female presidents. I want to change that. I want to be part of changing it. So now that I'm on the council with something meaningful to say and to do, and I feel like if you have one thing that that council needs and you say it, then all of a sudden you then become quite important. So I think you have to be patient and wait for that moment that you think, you know what, I can help change here. Let me just bring this up. And, and the first time I spoke, I think, um, about that was at one of my committee meetings this year. And I said, well, I went to a um, general assembly last year for World Taekwondo, and it was my first one as president. And I think that, God, there must have been about 200 people in that room there was probably about five females and I just thought what is going on this is just wrong this has to change you know these are what are representing the athletes we're banging on about 50 50 representation at the Olympic Games of our athletes and I feel like yes that's great but we have to have 50 50 and it's easier to do that I'm not saying it's a wrong yes we should be shouting about that and it's incredible but everything after that is so imbalanced and I want to be part of changing it and I suggested that at every General Assembly, each MA should bring one male and one female representative. And, you know, it was accepted. And I think from there is when it kind of snowballed into me and some of the people in my committee now where we are being asked to now create our gender equality roadmap for World Taekwondo, which is incredible to be part of. And again, it's something new. I've never done this before. And Claire, I'm going to be knocking on your door to help me loads, I'm sure. But to be part of something that's really, really meaningful, that is going to pave the way for other athletes, male and female, to have a better journey than I did. I feel like that's what I've always done throughout my whole career, kind of, as you said, trailblazing or paving the way. I kind of make the mistakes first, which is great because it makes me a better person and I've learned from it and, and you gain confidence doing that. But if I can create more opportunities for female leaders, create more opportunities for female coaches around the world, or even if it's just small little changes, for me, then I'm really happy to be part of the council and confident and ready to, to go out there and smash it. Olympic bronze medalist, Sarah Stevenson. I'm Catherine Granger, and this is episode three of the latest season of Medals and More. 2021 should see the return of world-class sport, with the delayed Tokyo Games, football's Euro 2020 and the Rugby League World Cup being among many people's highlights. But what does make a successful high-performance team? Conor O'Shea is the RFU's Director of Performance and also the former head coach of Italy and Harlequins. Does winning necessarily mean you're high-performing? There's a question to start everything off in, because I think one of the first things you have to understand when you look to maximize performance or have a high performing team is it's maximizing who you are and that is 
in my opinion, and all of these are opinions which can be chucked down and, and, and cut off quite happily because it's only opinion, is when you understand the environment, you understand the resource, you understand the culture that you work within. So you kind of gave, I, I finished playing, uh, I went in, I was director of rugby at London Irish, having played there for a number of years. What was high performing and successful there? Was it winning the Paragen Cup? Or was it being the best we could be? It go to Harlequins. It's a totally different ball game because you go in, and uh, I inherited a squad, which included, and forgive me for the people who don't know don't know their rugby, but they might know some of the names. People like Chris Robshaw and Danny Kerr and Nick Evans and Mike Brown and Joe Marler and Nick Easter, and you're kind of going, hold a second, this is a good group of players here. So maximizing who we are creating that performance impact actually then creates a different level of expectation and bar that group need to win so you're then putting the team and not just the players the people around us to ensure that you have a shot of success italy different 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 culture first and foremost and might kind of change my mind on culture over the years there because uh, and I'll come maybe later on when we talk about learning styles, but Italy is different because the expectation and the process that needs to be put in place is actually how can you maximize the team, maximize your performance, but keep people engaged because winning is not something that you're going to do on a regular basis at that time. And then I'm very fortunate to be here now in the Rugby Football Union where you've, you know, pandemic apart mm-hmm. and the challenges that, that that brings is a place where you know that the expectation has to be again to win. So when you talk about high-performing team, I'll say your vision, everyone has to have, your meaning, your purpose has to be realistic. It has to fit the environment you're in. And if I give this an example, go to the Italian national team and say, in my first time in there, my very poor Italian, and say, we're going to win the World Cup. People are just going to look at you and laugh you out the gate. So you you have to both understand culturally where you're coming from, what maximizing performance is, and then uh, setting a vision that is realistic. So you go to Harlequins and you say, we want to be the best team in Europe. That's something that can be achieved. You go to Italy and you say, we're going to be the number one team in the world in four years and you're just a laughing stock. So you set a realistic vision. We talk and learned a lot from my Harlequin's days about talent and character within a group. What does that look like? Is it a group that's all high on talent, all high on character? Well, that might cost too much. So what's the balance you have? And in any team, and I'm talking practitioners and players, there's an affordability side of things that always comes out. That's the reality of life. And you're going to have people who facilitate. You're going to have world-class people. And this is where it's all personal. This is where it's not, not a book. And people think everything is always perfect. No group and no team is a happy family. No culture is perfect. But if you have that purpose so your objective is always that long-term thing you want to win and i'll go to my italian days we wanted to win every game the 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 miracle i saw in someone like sergio parise uh, 130 40 caps was on the monday after a defeat he was as enthusiastic as energized as focused as he was the week before and the week before that absolutely incredible but that's because he had this inner drive and another thing that you talk about within your staff and your players this resilience 
the resilience to take the knockbacks. So when you talk about that purpose or the objective sticking, it's it's such a personalized thing. And when I am now talk about culture, I talk and I learned a lot from my Italian days. First day, my girls go to school in Italy. They come back. I said, what do you do today? I said, well, we copied off the blackboard. And second day, what do we do? Oh, we copied off the blackboard. Well, a bit bored now, Dad. We copied off the blackboard. Now, it wasn't copied off the blackboard the whole time. But they learn by rote. That is the way they learn. So myself and Cathy were having this, my cat were having this conversation saying, well, what should we do with this group of players? Because we can develop decision-making over time. But if we're dealing with the group, and it's not wrong, it is like you talk about the arts, so you talk science, you talk medicine, Italian lifestyle, it's incredible. But that is their learning methodology. Mm-hmm. So if you go in and try and change something, the impact that you will have, that you can develop and evolve that thinking over time, you can look at the younger age group and the younger profiles coming through and, and change that. But it's that that you focus on. So I think it's the, the key parts of me from any high-performing team are having a realistic vision that gives them absolute clarity of what you want to be, but also something they can achieve. So our our goal was always to win, but to create a future for the youth. Because we know that we knew in Italy, the work we were doing and the building blocks were actually may not be the the most uh, enjoyable, but make sure you celebrate when you do get those wins. Um, but it was actually playing for a greater reason and it was a huge responsibility. So we talked quite incessantly about five, 10 years time being in that stadium and watching a successful team and the building blocks were being done here. So mm-hmm. a, a high performing team is a huge uh, vision, realism, getting that balance of mavericks and talent and facilitators within the resource you have and then uh, keeping driving home that ultimate purpose that you're there for every day relentlessly. Conor O'Shea from the RFU. Thank you to all of my guests today who have shared fascinating insights and although clearly COVID-19 will be what we most remember for 2020, there was a lot more that happened this year. From a sporting point of view, the athlete voice has become louder, more respected, more relevant. Issues of diversity and inclusion have come to the fore and demanded crucial change. Challenges to improve welfare and integrity has made clear that the future of success lies not only in what we win, but how we win it. We want to win it the right way. And in the shadow of a global pandemic, I'll always be impressed and also proud of the response that has come to such an unexpected challenge. The speed of that response the agile thinking, the ability to adapt. All of these things have been made possible because of our fantastic people. And those people have ensured we are in a good position. Once again, we look forward to an Olympic and Paralympic year and the momentum and enthusiasm, irrespective of various surprises and setbacks, is exciting. Thinking back again to our conference last month, more than one of our external speakers commented on the incredible duty but also opportunity we have as a sporting community to help bring back some pride and passion to the public through the power of sport. So I hope for many reasons, we all have a fantastic 2021 to look forward to together. I'm Catherine Granger. This is Medals and More. Download and subscribe. You won't miss a moment.